All right, well, this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, this will be our first official message in Hebrews today, and we will see Jesus, God's climactic revelation. Jesus, God's climactic revelation. This is where we begin to actually dig into the text before us this morning. And uh, there's a copy on the back of your worship guide of an outline if you want to follow along there. Uh, But I want to read for us the text this morning. Uh, Beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If you read the Bible, if you've read the Bible, especially if you've read the New Testament and the letters of the New Testament, this one immediately strikes you differently. Most letters begin with some type of a greeting, a salutation, perhaps a blessing, blessed be the God And here we find this is not the normal way a letter begins. There's no greeting. There's no pleasantries. There's no commendation. There's no dilly-dallying. There's uh, no uh, signature saying this is the person who's writing the letter to you. It's not addressed to the saints. There's no grace and peace. There's nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, this is a sermon. And this is a good way to begin a sermon. It starts right out of the gate. And immediately gives you the main takeaway that you're going to get from this sermon. So the best sermons just give you an idea right up front, out of the gate, what it is, what is the verdict that's being preached here? What is it that you as a listener are going to be compelled by? The preacher or the writer of Hebrews in this case is saying that what God gave you in Jesus is better. And once you have Jesus, Don't ever go back to what you had before him. What God gives you in Jesus is better. And once you have Jesus, don't ever go back to what you had before him. The theme of this opening monologue, one sentence in the original, verses 1 through 4, is one sentence. This introduction to the sermon essentially says this. God spoke his final and his best revelation, not through human prophets but in his divine son. God spoke his final and best revelation, not through human prophets, but in his divine son. Now, if you remember, this letter is to convince a small group of Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back into Judaism, and he's writing to tell them, whatever you do, don't do that. We'll find out in the next chapter, in chapter 2, that this church was planted by the apostles. So the apostles came and they began to preach, oftentimes in a synagogue to Jews. 
And they would begin to proclaim there that Jesus was in fact the Messiah who you've been waiting for. This was an exhilarating message. If you read in Acts, the preaching of the apostles, it's always exhilarating. Remember at Pentecost, the first uh, proclamation that we have recorded of the gospel coming forth in uh, broad avenues right after Jesus uh, has left the apostles with the uh, message of proclamation and they're standing there and they're beginning to unfold the scriptures before a Jewish audience. And Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth is your Messiah. He's God's anointed one. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the resurrected son of David. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. See, Jesus was the punchline of every apostolic sermon. Jesus was the focal point. He was what all of the previous revelation was culminating in and pointing toward. And so apostolic preaching was arguing the case that Jesus fulfilled what the Father had promised and come as Messiah. And so these precious saints, wherever they were, had gathered, they heard that message, and when they heard it, they believed it. They believed it. They believed that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment. And so they left the comfort of Judaism. These Jews left the synagogue. New Saturday routine. No more going to the synagogue on Saturdays. New Sunday routine. Now that's the Lord's Day and we're going to be going to church. They would have left the the comfort of close family relationships, probably cousins and aunts and uncles or grandparents, whoever it was that didn't come to believe Jesus was the Messiah, there was now a separation and Christ brought uh, an allegiance that was required and therefore it would begin to separate families, those who trusted in Christ and embraced him and those who didn't. These believers lost their property. We read later in Hebrews. When that happened, they did it joyfully. Some of them had been thrown in prison for Christ. His body had been around long enough that the preacher will say in chapter 5, they should already have teachers among them, and yet they're still babes in Christ. So we don't know how old the church was, but it was old enough that it should be fairly well established at this point. Fairly well established in the doctrine of Christ. They've come out of the shadows of Judaism into the brilliance of Christianity. And yet now, under duress, under pressure, they're beginning to contemplate, man, maybe I should go back. Maybe I should go back. I mean, it's not that Jews were particularly liked in the Roman Empire, but they were certainly more tolerable than Christians. Bearing the name of Christ was a worse reproach than being a Jew. And, and so in the, the loss of all that they'd given up in coming to Christ, in losing perhaps friends and family, in losing uh, possessions and inheritance, in losing uh, not only that, but all of the familiar things in the tradition that they had known, and now persecution, they were, they were starting to say, you know what, maybe Jesus isn't really worth it. Maybe we'll just go back to the way things used to be. I think I liked my life better before Christ. Maybe I can still have a relationship with God apart from Christ. Let's go back to the good old ways. 
My friends, if after coming to Jesus, you've ever doubted whether you want to or can remain in Him, Hebrews is a good book for you. It has a message for you. When you're disillusioned because believers let you down and you begin to doubt your faith, you go back to Christ as revealed in Hebrews here. When you're discouraged because your progress seems weak in the Lord, and maybe you look at your life and you say, I'm tired of battling, I don't see very much progress, I'm at a standstill. And you go back to worshiping Christ. And when you've been rattled by opposition, perhaps someone has opposed you and you've begun to feel discouraged in your faith, and you begin to wonder, is this really worth it? then the solution is to go back and be reacquainted with the glory of Jesus Christ. See, that's what the preacher is doing here. Right out of the gate, no introduction, no pleasantries. He immediately reminds them that Jesus Christ surpasses everything on this earth. And specifically when it comes to the message that he has revealed, once you trust in him, there is no going back. Jesus is a fuller revelation. He's a better revelation. And so our outline this morning is God has spoken to his people. God has spoken to his people. And really he has spoken best and finally in his son. But the way that the author here is going to argue is in verse 1, he's going to make it clear that previously God spoke piecemeal revelation through human prophets. So back in the... In the olden days, in the glory days, he spoke bit by bit through human mouthpieces known as prophets. Second part of his argument then is, now God spoke ultimate revelation through his unrivaled son. The word order is mixed up there, but you get it. He spoke ultimate revelation through his unrivaled son. My friends, this is a brilliant way to begin a sermon It's written with wonderful logic and clarity. It is one sentence. And this theme is going to be God who speaks to his people. He begins by saying, long ago at many times and in many ways. Kind of sounds like uh, long ago in a land far away or something like that. But he's talking about the former days. He's talking about the old covenant, the old era, the old testament. The best English rendering here is God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What is he saying here? He's saying that God speaks to people, get this, through people. God speaks to people through people. The people he speaks to first are called prophets and then they go and they speak to the people in behalf of God. They get a message, and they get the message, and now they need to go give the message to the people who will listen. They deliver it. And so the author here is saying that God spoke to the fathers, the patriarchs, the forefathers of Israel. He spoke to really their whole lineage, their whole nation, their whole country. And how God spoke to them was through mediation, and the mediator was a human mouthpiece known as a prophet. A messenger, an instrument. And in the Old Testament, this took place at many times and in many ways. And oftentimes when a prophet would come, he would come on the scene and he would say, Thus says the Lord. 
Yahweh says, and then launch. It was unmediated. He'd receive revelation directly from God, the exact very words, and then speak them out exactly as God had given them. The message was always 100% true if it was a prophet sent from God. The message was 100% divine in the source. It was never mixed with human words. In fact, the prophetic word was considered to come directly from God. It never strayed. It was utterly reliable. And the text says here it came in in many times, or you could translate this as many portions. And I, I think both are true. It came in succession in a variety of times, and then it came in parts. That's the idea of portions. You could say it this way. It was bits and pieces along the way. And so when you think about this revelation, as good as it was, it lacked. Now, it didn't lack in in the way that it had error. It lacked in the nature of it that it was only part of the story. If you're to think of this, if, if you go to an expensive restaurant, you look at the menu, right? Typically, the higher the price on the menu, the smaller and the tastier the portion. And that's kind of how it works. So the more expensive the restaurant, the smaller the amount of food that you're going to get on the plate. And if you go somewhere and you get a, a five-course meal, you get that first plate and you have, what? You have an hors d'oeuvre. You get the hors d'oeuvre and you look at the hors d'oeuvre and you go to eat it. It's, it's part one. And, and it's not just a garnish. It's not just the sauce. Right? Whatever it is, it's, it's the whole package. It's this delicious bite. All the pieces are there. It's, it's complete in and of itself, but it's not the full meal yet. You're not getting your meal on one plate. You're getting one plate and you're digesting that and then you're getting the next plate and you're eating that portion and the next plate and you're eating that portion. That was the idea. And so this word that came from God was, was a complete word. It was accurate. It was beneficial. And yet it was just the first courses. Many portions, he says. Many pieces. A tidbit here, a tidbit there. And like an hors d'oeuvre and an appetizer would begin to prepare you for the main course, these tidbits of words along the way were preparing you for the ultimate message. They were preparing you for Christ. Each one would come in, then to use another analogy like a puzzle piece, and it's beginning to fit together. And as you're seeing the puzzle pieces set in place, you're beginning to get a portrait of what the final picture is going to look like. Text says, not only did it come in many pieces or many times, but it came in many ways. You know, something I've, I've, I've loved about the way God chose to communicate with us is how he chose to express creativity in the way he communicated. He could have said, man, I'm going to communicate through one person one time and deliver the entire message and be done. Or one personality. I'm not even going to use a human. I'm just going to drop the book right on you so you have it. I'm going to put words in the sky. I'm not going to use a human instrument. And yet God in his creativity decided, no, I'm going to give revelation to my people and I'm going to give it to them progressively. 
I'm going to give them little hints beginning in Genesis, and then I'm going to begin to fill in the picture more and more and more, and there's going to be a sense of anticipation that's building. And people are going to look back, and they're going to appreciate all that I've said before, and they're going to look forward with anticipation to even more to come. I'm going to serve it up to them like a multi-course meal that they get to enjoy as I reveal myself to them. Think about the many ways that God spoke to his people. Just a few of them. He walked in the garden with Adam. Just strolling along. Having a conversation. Speaking to the creature. He comes to Abraham and disrupts his sleep in a vision. And then later shows up right by the the trees there in a theophany. So he actually comes, the pre-incarnate Christ, embodied. He comes himself. Jacob, he decided to wrestle with. How would you like to have God speaking to you in a wrestling match? Joseph, he gave dreams. He spoke face to face with Moses. Elijah heard him in the still small voice and the gentle whisper. See, there would be a message, a vision, a word from the Lord, a covenant, a dream, an interpretation. All of these various ways that God began to communicate. And yet, as one commentator notes, his point is not merely the diversity of revelation in the Old Testament, but its fragmentary, incomplete, and gradual character. The fact that it was just little tidbits along the way. Every prophecy originated from God. Second Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That means that it, it wasn't a man coming to God and saying, God, I'm going to wrestle you now to get a message. Rather, it was God actually implanting his message into his mouthpiece. Peter said men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so whatever a prophet spoke, God's people were obligated to listen to Whatever a prophet spoke, God's people were obligated to listen to. So you didn't get to choose which prophets you liked and didn't like. You didn't get to choose which oracles suited you well and which ones didn't. In fact, the prophets were to be believed. This is what Jesus rebuked the disciples for in Luke 24 when they are on the road. He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What had happened? He'd been raised. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And he's saying, look, if we go back to the prophets and we just see what they say and we believe what they say, then you would have actually seen that in fact they testified to me and my resurrection. So if you grew up in Judaism, you were a little kid, you would have learned the prophets. They would have been read in the synagogue every week. You would have memorized excerpts from the prophets. You would have regarded them highly. It would have been a message for you that that were comforting because it was how you had come to know your God. And when you talk about privilege or privilege on this earth, there was no people that was more privileged than Israel because Israel heard from God. Text says he spoke to the fathers. He spoke to Israel. This is why Paul would say in in Romans 9 of Israel that they had the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. 
See, Israel was in a position that unlike all of the pagan nations around them who did not hear the voice of God, they received the voice of God and they received it through the prophets. And so Israel was a privileged people. It wasn't because of anything that they had done. God chose because he'd set his great love upon them to come and to speak to them. How did Israel respond? Well, generally speaking, when God spoke, Israel either yawned or they rejected it altogether. See, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is largely a rejection of the prophets. God speaking things that his people didn't want to hear him say. God speaking things that didn't match up with their view of what they wanted to hear from the Lord. That's why false prophets would often rise. You even had kings that would say, I'm, I'm tired of hearing of prophets from the Lord. Instead, I have prophets that tell me the things that I would like to hear. And so for this little group, because they'd been God-fearers there in the synagogue, they actually believed the prophets. And they're thinking, you know, maybe we can just stick with what we have in the Old Testament and we don't have to embrace Christ. And so here the preacher takes the prophets, he takes the heritage that they had, and what's interesting is he doesn't denigrate them. He doesn't say that they were useless or bad. But he uses beautiful and persuasive logic to argue for the superiority of Jesus now as God's final word. Look at the comparisons that he does here. And, and this, this book is full of comparisons and contrasts. He talks about the era or the timing. Long ago, now in verse 2, in these last days. Two different eras. The audience is different. Verse 1, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days he's spoken to us. So contrast the fathers, which is Israel, to us is now Israel and Gentiles. It's the whole world. The manner is different. Long ago at many times and in many ways, piecemeal coming out bit by bit. He has spoken to us and the implication is once and for all by his son. And then finally, and most significantly, in comparing and contrasting, look at the means by which God speaks. The end of verse 1, it used to be by the prophets. And now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And in the original, those are, are lined up. He's drawing a comparison. Before he spoke in the prophets, now he's spoken in his son. My friends, he's trying to draw attention to the distinction here and the significance. And so we see that previously God had spoke piecemeal revelation through human prophets. Now God spoke ultimate revelation through his unrivaled son. Verse 2, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. I want you to just think for a minute about what we've been reading it's such familiar language to us. We hear all the time that God is speaking, that God has spoken, that God has a word. We can almost become indifferent. You're saying this is the uncreated 
creator of the universe. This is the self-existent God who needs nothing and answers to no one, and he's speaking. Why do we speak? Well, we speak to make ourselves known. That's how you share life with someone, is, is you sit down and speak. In fact, as you might get to know someone relationally, we say, ah, oh, that person's kind of closed off. What do we mean? They don't talk much. Or if they do, they're not going to talk about anything personal. Rather, if you want to know someone deeply, if you want to be known by them, what are you going to do? You're going to speak and you're going to share who you are. You're going to open up and talk about your character, your likes and dislikes, the things that you struggle with and that you're rejoicing in. You're going to share yourself to others by revealing yourself. I love how one commentator puts it. He says in these verses, God is pictured not as a silent and distant force, impassively regulating the universe, but as a talker. God is pictured as a talker here. One who has been speaking and arguing and pleading and wooing, commanding, telling stories, conversing, and generally spinning words across the lines between earth and heaven since the beginning of time. My friend, God speaks to his people. You have to pause and apprehend that again. What a wonderful and brain-crushing reality that is. And how is it that God speaks to his people? Well, there's a a phenomenal nugget in the argument here that I, I want to bring out for you. The main verb in this opening section actually comes in verse 2. And so if you like to mark those things up, you can mark. In verse 2, he has spoken. Has spoken is the main verb in this section. Your translation probably says has spoken. Back up in verse 1, you probably have something that says God spoke or after God spoke. That's actually a helping verb. So it modifies The main verb, it's dependent upon the main verb. It clarifies something about the main verb. And so here's how this would work in language. Having spoken, verse 1, or after having spoken, verse 2, God spoke. God spoke. He uses a verbal form here that indicates this is authoritative and it is final. He's presenting the information with absolute certainty. It'd be different than, um, if I were to illustrate this, if I were to say, well, we're working on forming a conclusion right now, or if I said, we have formed a conclusion. We're, We're arriving at a decision. We have arrived at a decision. We're considering what we will charge this person with. We now have considered the charges. See, there's a note of finality that is is happening in the contrast to say that God has spoken in past ways and now that's leading to a conclusive final speaking at this point. And this point is furthered. He doesn't actually say by his son in the original. He just says by son. Now, of course, he's talking about his son, but, but why would you leave the article out? When we leave an article out, it's, it's to make something um, indefinite. So, right, if I said, uh, go over and, and get a ball from the bin, I'm saying just go get any ball. It doesn't really matter. 
But I have to say, go get the ball that's signed by Steve Ciszek. Whew, now we're talking about one ball, right? The ball, the specific ball. Not, I don't want any of the others. I just want that one ball. But here when the writer says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by son. What he's drawing attention to is one who has the character of being a son. See, it's a, it's a way of communicating sonship. And so the author's point is, is not merely the identity of sonship, but the quality of sonship. It's the idea that Jesus has the characteristics of a son, and so his credentials are vastly different than the credentials of anyone else who's ever come and spoken on behalf of God. Think of it this way, if he is the son, then he is in fact God. He's drawing attention to the fact that God came and spoke himself. That he's uniquely qualified to be the one through whom God would speak his final word. Prophets? Prophets are great. Except when they're not. Every prophet was a human. Every prophet was a sinner. Every prophet died. Jesus comes. He's not any of those things. I mean, he's a man, but he's certainly not a sinner and he didn't stay dead. He lives again. And prophets are great if that's all you got, right? Getting little puzzle pieces, getting hors d'oeuvres and entrees or appetizers along the way. But when Jesus comes and he brings himself and you hear from the son, that is now a whole other story. See, sonship says that he has the same essential nature as the father, the same essential being that the son of God, in fact, is God himself. Jesus came, as the text says, here in the last days. He came in the last days. He's talking about an era, the last days of revelation, the last days of salvation, the last days of history that we're still in right now, but it was the time where God had promised there's coming a new covenant. There's coming a time where I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to take out your heart of flesh and or heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That day is coming, and those will be the last days. And now Jesus is revealed in the last days. And so in this case, Jesus came himself. Now you think about this happening. It's the Father God who's speaking in verse 1, and it's the Father God who's speaking in verse 2. He's just changing the agency. In verse 1, he's speaking to humans who speak to humans. In verse 2, he's speaking through his son. It was God himself coming, God himself speaking. And so that made it final. It made it conclusive. It was the full package. It was the final word on salvation, the main course, the last puzzle piece, the testimony that the son, in fact, had arrived. And so it's not merely that Jesus is mixed in a group of everyone else and he's roughly equivalent to them in terms of benefit. It's not even that he's the first among equals or head and shoulders above the rest, but that he is qualitatively different. And you know what this is like in, in everyday life. How does it work when I'm in the middle of something and I hear an issue going on outside and I don't want to personally deal with it? Go tell your brother that daddy wants to talk to him. And then what happens? That never works. So I have an option. Go tell your brother that daddy really wants to talk to him. 
if he doesn't come in this time, then, you know. <clears throat> so then the messenger comes back and we're still not in the house. And so what happens? Well, eventually I'm going to get up off the couch. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to call my son in. No way am I comparing myself to God. But the idea here and what we read in our scripture reading is that God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet who'd been rejected and not listened to and trampled on. And then eventually he says, I'm going to come down myself. And I'm going to speak. And I'm not going to mediate it. It will be my actual person. Suddenly brings new context to various passages that we know well. I want to show you this in a couple places in the Gospels that are just marvelous. About the unrivaled nature of Jesus speaking. Turn over with me to Matthew 17. Turn in your Bibles back to Matthew 17. And you see the uniqueness of the Son on display. Matthew chapter 17 is the transfiguration. This is before Jesus has gone to the cross where he decides to kind of, kind of peel back the curtain for a minute, as it were, and unmask his glory and unveil it. Verse 1, he takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain by themselves. And Matthew records this just so simply, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So you saw his majestic glory. You saw this is the king reigning in glory. This is who we saw in Isaiah 6 with the, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory. It's Jesus. He's white as light. Verse 3, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Moses would be the law and Elijah would be the prophets. Right? These were a couple of heavy hitters from the Old Testament. Right, John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah. Everyone's talking about Moses. He was considered really the, the supreme prophet in the Old Testament because he gave the covenant, he gave the law to God's people. So you have the two biggest hitters in the Old Testament right now, Moses and Elijah. And Peter said to Jesus, verse 4, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Guys, hold on. I'm so excited right now. The kingdom's coming. We have the law. We have the prophets. We have the Messiah. I'm going to go get the supplies. I'll come back. I'm going to build some booths that you guys can stay in. We're going to see the kingdom established. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. This is the son with whom I am well pleased. Do what? Listen to him. My son is here speaking, and you need to listen to him. When the disciples heard this, verse 6, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And look at this. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You have the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament there, standing in glory with Christ. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're gone off the scene and Jesus is left. See, when God spoke through his son, this was a conclusive and a final word that caused everything else to go into the background and into the shadows. In fact, this is a final word that must be listened to. Because to hear the voice of the son is to hear the voice of God. And how you relate to the word of Christ is how you relate to God himself. I want to show you how marvelous this is. I just was struck thinking about this reality. Turn over to John's gospel with me now. Thinking about 
the word that God has spoken through Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the logos. The very revelation of God. And the word, this is Jesus, was with God and the word was God. So what happened with this word? Well, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a human and he, he made his abode here. He actually began to dwell with his people. Why? So that he could show us the Father's glory. Look at the second part of verse 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How did this message compare to the prophets of old? Well, verse 17 of John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known. Literally, Jesus has exegeted the Father. You talk about expositional preaching means we explain the Bible. Jesus came and he exegeted the Father. He explained the Father to the world. say, wow, it's pretty amazing. God took on flesh. God became a man. God spoke. What did his people think of him? How did the people receive Jesus? John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The world didn't know him, verse 10, and his own people didn't receive him, verse 11. See, they rejected the prophets of old because they were rejecting God. They were rejecting the voice of God. They had no stomach for it. They had no appetite for it. And so when Jesus comes and he's speaking on behalf of God, they reject it because they have no stomach for it and they have no appetite for it. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He came and he explained the Father. And everything about his ministry is distinct because unlike the prophets of old, this is in fact the Son. If you turn the page over, John chapter 1 verse 34. John is talking about Jesus and his revelatory ministry. He says in verse 34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Of God. It is God Himself. Nathaniel comes, John chapter 1, verse 49, asked about the identity of Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And so, what we have is right on the very first page of John's Gospel the revelation that God's Son, very God Himself, is taken on flesh. He has spoken, and as He speaks now, you're either accepting or rejecting God based upon what you do. With his message. Turn over and look at how this continues in John's gospel. The final word of the son. John chapter 5. You begin to see what the author in Hebrews has in mind. As he's helping these saints. To see how critical this issue is. Jesus makes himself the dividing line in John chapter 5, verse 23. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, there's that speaking, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear, those who listen to it, those who heed it, will live. Goes on and talks about how he speaks in behalf of the Father. Jesus says everything the Father tells him to. He's the perfect prophet. Verse 36 of chapter 5, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is saying, I'm so tightly connected to the Father that how you relate to me is how you relate to God. In fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 6, if you turn over the page, that it's he himself who's teaching. John chapter 6 verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. There again, he's claiming when I speak, when I teach you, you're not just hearing from a man, you are hearing directly from God himself. John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John chapter 6, the words that Jesus was saying were hard. He talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's what he says are spirit and life. And everyone starts to leave because the words that he's saying are too difficult to understand. They're uh, too confrontational. They can't handle what he's saying. And so in John chapter 6, verse 66, many people are walking away because of the words that he's saying. And so he looks at the 12 in, in John chapter 6, verse 67, and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You've spoken and you've given us eternal life through your words, the knowledge of God. This is a teaching that Jesus himself said didn't originate with him, but with the Father, John chapter 7. So Jesus answered them in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And right there he begins to compare himself to Moses. John chapter 7, everyone is so amazed in verse 46 that they, they're trying to think about what to do with Jesus and they think maybe they need to arrest him. And in verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. That's why the crowds would marvel as they heard him teach because he taught as one having authority. Jesus spoke according to all that the Father had told them. And he said that the only way that you could hear the voice of Jesus is if the Father drew you to Jesus. In other words, it's not enough to merely hear the words of Christ. You actually have to hear the words of Christ and you have to believe them. You have to believe that God is speaking to you. This is what Jesus would say of himself in John chapter 10. Flip over one more passage here in John's Gospel. As we look at the, the speaking ministry of God coming to us. He says in John chapter 10 verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you. 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. The sheepfold is an analogy for all of the people that belong to God. They are his sheep. They are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so the sheepfold is God's people. And he's saying there's one way to get into the sheepfold. Verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So I come up, the gatekeeper is my father. I'm the door, I'm the access point. I'm the way that you get into the fold. Verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. This is personal. He knows them. And he leads them out one by one by one. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. My friends, when you hear the voice of Jesus Christ, you are hearing the very voice of God. God spoke his final and his conclusive word through Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what do you do when you hear the voice of Jesus? Is that the voice of your shepherd? If that is the voice of your shepherd, then you know God. If you don't know that voice, then you don't know God because he's the access point. And so the the warning that was coming to this precious flock of God that was tempted to go back to the old prophets was you have heard God speak to you in his son, the final revelation. Don't you dare go back to anything else. Don't you dare think that anything could compare with hearing his voice. Please don't leave the substance for the shadow. See, every single person that had come before that came in bits and pieces. And even Moses, standing up there with Christ, what did he do? He didn't even get into the promised land. Because he lacked self-control, he got angry, he distrusted the Lord, he dishonored his name in front of his people. What about Elijah? Well, Elijah did pretty well until he got depressed and started to have self-pity because he thought he was the only guy that was trusting the Lord when he wasn't. See, even those best prophets, the very two best guys from the Old Testament, were still sinners and they were beset with weakness. And so, when God speaks to us through Jesus, he speaks a better word. It is reliable. You can trust it. It can never change. You think about your source of confidence then in this world. It's not ultimately in a pulpit. You can only trust a pulpit so much as it speaks the voice of God can't trust in scientists or politicians or government or academia. You can't trust yourself, your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own machinations, what seems or feels right or true to you. My friends, God spoke to his son and he is still speaking today through the living and active word of God, the voice of that very son. I was thinking about this in my own life, and as I reflected on this passage, I just thought, how can I be so quick at times to disregard the voice of God when he's spoken to me in his son? How can you treat his commands and his instructions lightly when it comes to your obedience? How can you seek comfort in things other than the words of comfort that he provides in other places as if those would ever satisfy or to cling to his promises and look for some earthly satisfaction how can you not be humbled 
I mean, when you think about the fact that God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, now he's spoken to us through his son. He hasn't spoken to everybody through his son. You understand there's only some who hear the voice of the good shepherd and hear that as their shepherd. There's many who hear that voice and they don't know. They try and climb over the gate or go some other way to get into the sheepfold. If you hear the voice of God, that's not because of anything in you that is good, but because of God's gracious mercy that he would speak to you and he would give you an ear to hear. So my friends, if you hear the voice of Jesus, your shepherd, then you belong to the fold. Anthony was writing years ago, as recorded by Athanasius. He said this to him. He said, do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us, for he is a man. Think about it. If you're in the, the Roman Empire and the very most important individual in the known world writes you a personal letter, that would be quite astonishing. I was thinking back to when we were we were having dinner somewhere and I won't name which president, but there was a, you know, the, the presidential photo that's signed where if, if you give a certain amount, you get a signature on the photo sent. And so somebody had it framed in their office. And true, it was just a little guy and he looked at it and he was like, wow, the president signed out for you guys, you know, and, and didn't realize that, you know, 100,000 of these get printed and sent out for all the donors that, that send something. He thought it was a, a personal autograph. But the idea that someone so significant would give something personally to me was, would be astounding and humbling. And so Anthony says, do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us for he is a man. Wonder rather that God wrote the law for human beings and has spoken to us through his son. The author of Hebrews is presenting Jesus as the better prophet, the better word of God here in the introduction of this sermon. And next week we will see that he's not only the better prophet, but he's the better priest and he's the better king. Will you pray with me? Lord, it is a wonder that you would speak to people like us. Lord, I I have such poor tolerance as a man. I'll only say something so many times without being listened to and then uh, move on. But Lord, to think that you speak, even being disregarded by your people, you patiently then speak to us to help us see uh, where we've gone astray. Lord, you've revealed Christ to us, the hope of glory, so that we might not grope around in idolatry and grope around in unbelief in our lost condition. Father, I pray that we would cling to the final revelation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or that we would not distrust it, we would not disregard it, we would not be indifferent to it. But Lord, that we would expect that uh, what we've been given cannot be replaced, can be duplicated, uh, can't be in any way changed out for something better. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through Christ. We love you and we love his voice. We love to hear his voice. Lord, and what a sign that is that then we belong to you. As you said to your disciples, anyone who who hears these words of mine and abides in them, I abide in him and he in me. We love you, Lord. Amen.